Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it is being called the handshake scene across Canada. An awkward moment today between the Prime Minister and Alberta Premier Daniel Smith when the usual handshake at their first official meeting in Ottawa, the photo op, went terribly wrong. So what happened? We get an expert opinion. Former Health Minister Dr. Jane Philpott weighs in on the federal government's new health care deal to the provinces that promises $48 billion in new money. Is it enough? A little more true crime welcomes John Allure, co-author of Wish You Were Here, A Murdered Girl, A Brother's Quest, and The Hunt for a Serial Killer, about his long search for the truth about the death of his older sister, Teresa Allure, east of Montreal in 1978. But first, we get the latest on that massive rescue operation underway in Turkey and Syria today following Monday's massive earthquake in that region. Find out how Canadian organizations are pitching in. We're going to start tonight, though, on the latest in the situation in Turkey and Syria. It's been another really tough day. Search teams continued uh, to pour into the region. Uh, Rescuers continue to dig through the rubble, looking for survivors. It continues to be very cold there, unseasonably cold. Uh, Again, the area in southern Turkey on the border with northeastern or northwestern Syria, rather, was struck by two huge quakes on Monday. The largest of magnitude 7.8 hit around 4 a.m. as most people slept, toppling thousands of buildings. The death toll is already above 7,900, and that is expected to continue to climb significantly. Many more are injured. Many more are left without shelter, with nowhere to go, especially on the Syrian side. And people are racing against time because, again, of those freezing temperatures compounding the danger and the misery. There have been moments of joy Of course, here's the sound of jubilation from the crowd today as a family was being pulled from a collapsed building in a Syrian village. Day of jubilation. There have been many, but not enough. Uh, There's been growing frustration as well about the pace of the effort. Part of their issue here is a lot of the access roads to a very difficult part of the world to reach have been cut. And on the Syrian side, there's politics as well. Now, today, this country, Canada, announced a $10 million package uh, as part of an initial relief package to earthquake relief efforts in Turkey and Syria. International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan says they came up with that amount based on their initial assessments. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we came up with the, the initial 10 million. Normally for disasters, we're actually, uh, usually we start a, a little bit lower, but given the magnitude, based on the uh, feedback we were getting, why we're actually going um, higher. Once we have more, uh, we'll be able to move very, very quickly. Uh, I'll be contacting the various heavier urban search and rescue teams to take a look at what we can deploy. Harjit Sajjan there. What has become quickly obvious in this tragedy that has struck two different countries in different ways is that aid agencies are particularly worried tonight about northwestern Syria, where more than 4 million people were already relying on humanitarian assistance there because of the war in Syria that's been going on for more than a decade. Joining me now with more on this is Rula Amin. She is a senior communications advisor with the UN High Commission for Refugees Regional Bureau for the Middle East and North Africa. And she joins us tonight from Amman in Jordan. Thank you for your time. Thank you for hosting me. 
you know, I know just from your time as a correspondent, your time with the UN, you've spent so much of the last decade watching what's unfolding in Syria and in uh, that area of southern Turkey and the refugee crisis and the war. And uh, from afar, this just looks like it couldn't po- possibly have arrived at a worse time for those who are already vulnerable. It's exactly that. You know, I've been covering this this region and the events in Syria for so long, and you always think it cannot get worse, and it did. The earthquake hit some of the areas in Syria, some of the areas that were hit, are where most many of the most vulnerable Syrians live. Vulnerable because they have been going through 12 years of crisis, of war and conflict. They ha- there is a deep economic crisis in the country, COVID-19, inflation, and they have been struggling. And with every passing year through this crisis, things have become harder on them, especially those who had been displaced. So uh, until this day, it's good to remind you uh, or your audience, Mm. until this day, there are more than 6.8 million people who had left their homes, fled their homes looking for safety. And they are still living in tents, flimsy shelters, damaged or partially damaged buildings. And many of them live in the area where the earthquake hit. So it's not only that we are seeing a huge loss of lives and damage to homes and and, and buildings and infrastructure, but we are also seeing families unable to get over this, to protect their families. Many of them had to flee their homes when the earthquake happened, and so far they have not returned to these homes. The homes initially were anyway very weak in terms of structure, and the earthquake made them weaker. They can't go back because now they are not safe and could collapse at any minute. The weather is terrible. We are witnessing the most severe storm, winter storm so far in the region. It's a snowstorm. They have been staying all night outside in the snow, heavy rain, strong wind, and they don't have any option. They don't know where to go. So the needs are huge. They have loved ones and families under the rubble. They don't have enough tools and equipment to extract the bodies, or even save lives. Um, They don't have somewhere where they can take shelter and put their families and children in a safe place. They don't have food. They don't have money where they can buy things or rent a new place. So the needs are immense. And And the weather and the earthquake are creating new obstacles that is making the humanitarian workers' job to reach these people with assistance even more difficult. Yeah, I heard you mention at one point that in even just in that area where the quake struck more or less near that epicenter in Gaziantep on the other side of the border, that 4 million of those 6.8 million displaced Syrians are actually in that area. Uh, It's hard to comprehend just what kind of needs uh, they have, but how do you begin to address them? First, more than 4 million people need humanitarian assistance in northwest Syria. Uh, Not all are displaced, but most of them are displaced, and they have been displaced for several times. So how do we address all these immense needs? We started very early on, the minute we heard of the earthquake, we started mobilizing our relief items from different parts of the country to try to send it as soon as possible to the affected areas. We sent tents, plastic sheeting, core relief items, blankets, thermal blankets, mattresses, kitchen sets, all stuff that people need immediately. But we are also working to look at options of shelter, huge tents, helping the inter- the local NGOs who are trying to equip shelters to accommodate 
all these families that had to flee their homes. It's a huge task. And the UN alone cannot do it. Humanitarian workers alone cannot do it, cannot meet all the needs. That's why we say international support is critically needed. It's critically needed to try to mitigate the impact of this devastating earthquake on people, especially that they have been really stripped of many of what people usually have to be able to cope and to move on. We need the the world to step in, to, to rise to this occasion. It's a very painful moment for Syrians. And I think we owe them to stand by them, to show them support, to say that the world has not forgotten them after 12 years, because this is how they feel. They feel alone, and they're trying to extract the bodies of their loved ones and trying to save lives with their own hands, with basic shovels. They don't have the equipment. You can see from the pictures and the images that have been coming from this area how difficult it is, how shocked they are, how afraid they are. There has been so many aftershocks and even another strong earthquake happening after the initial earthquake. And so people are still very afraid. They are concerned. And another thing is that, you know, even in the Turkish part where the earthquake has hit, many Syrian refugees, tens of thousands of Syrian refugees were actually living there. So they also, some of them lost their lives there, lost family members, lost their homes. And Ghazi Antab, which is the epicenter of this earthquake, it was the hub for all the aid agencies to coordinate all kinds of aid delivered to northwest Syria across from Turkey. So that will also create uh, additional challenges for the humanitarian agencies to bring in more aid to northwest because also their the needs are immense. You know, people live in very remote and hard to reach areas. The snow, the combination of the snow and the and the earthquake has blocked many roads, damaged many roads, power outages, no internet. And it's really hard today to assess the impact of the earthquake completely and comprehensively. I think we this will only unfold in the next few days. And we're just praying that the numbers, I mean, we think the numbers will definitely rise, but we're hop, we are hoping to a minimum. Rula, there are so many there's a lot of politics here, too, and I'm wondering how that happens. There are U.S. sanctions on Syria. There is certainly the weaponization of aid in areas that the Syrian government doesn't control. This is all a story you know very well from your long time covering this war. Uh, how do you think that might impact things and how do you get around it? It's true. There are a lot of politics. And, and that's why whenever we speak to donors, whenever we speak to all the stakeholders that have a say in what happens in Syria, we say, please, Keep politics aside and focus on the humanitarian needs of these people. We always call for depoliticizing humanitarian needs and and the efforts to address these needs. Because the civilian population in Syria for the past 12 years have been paying the highest price for this crisis, a crisis that involved not only Syrians, but regional powers, international powers, so many other stakeholders. And it's the Syrian people who have paid the highest price. So now... We should at least help them at this moment without any consideration for political agendas or to try to deprive anybody who had been affected by this earthquake from the aid, from the assistance they desperately need for political reasons. Do you, I mean, I, I realize that even the border between Turkey and northwestern Syria is sometimes hard to access. Um, are you confident that you'll be able to encourage the sides to do this? Uh, already we're seeing some politics, I find. 
Well, what happened is that, you know, for years now, the United Nations had been authorized by the United Nations Security Council to send aid into northwest Syria through Turkey without the government of Syria involved or being at the border. And this authorization was important to allow the humanitarian agencies to cross, not for them to cross the border, but for the aid to be sent across the border without the government's approval. Now, what happened now is that the combination of weather and the earthquake, it had hampered and affected the roads that are the, the trucks and the trailers use to get to Northwestern with all the aid that people need. So there's been calls for other border crossings to be open to allow this aid to get in. And there are calls also, and the UN is also working even with the Syrian government and the opposition on the other side to bring in more aid from inside Syria to the to the opposition-controlled areas in what we call cross-line delivery of aid mechanism. So there are a few mechanisms, but as you said, they are very politicized and authorizing uh, new mechanisms and new border crossings is a very, very politicalized issue. We, we are calling on everybody. Please don't consider the politics. Please just keep in your mind the people needs as we try to address it. We have to keep our eyes on the ball. The goal is to reach these people as soon as possible with as much aid as possible. Because as you pointed out in the just before, I mean, time here is of the essence. This is already a more vulnerable than usual population to suffer through something like this. Add on the weather, and you've basically flung people who were already living on the edge right out into the elements in the dead of winter with nothing to turn to. It's exactly that. You just described it. You know, you look at the videos that you see of, of, of people standing there in shock. And I'm talking to my colleagues who are on the ground. And the stories they convey, it's of desperation. People feel they are left alone. And I think this is something that we need to keep in mind. We need to tell Syrians that they are still on our mind. They are still in our hearts. We will do everything possible to send assistance, to send aid, to stand by them at this very painful moment. So, I mean, what should we be looking for then in the next 48 to 96 hours? It feels like this is the crucial, crucial time. But I was talking to someone uh, yesterday about this as well. This is also a situation where not only are you worried about saving lives of those who've been trapped, you're worried about saving lives of those who've, who've survived, who've escaped, which is not always the case in, in a disaster like this. It's exactly that. There are the efforts to save the lives under the rubble and those who are injured. And then there are the efforts to protect the people who had to flee their homes and their buildings and cannot go back to it now because the risk of collapse, they have nowhere to go. It's also happening in the middle of the winter in a very bitter cold weather. And so it's it's a terrible, terrible situation. It's a situation where you feel it's really an, a moral obligation to stand by these people and not to look away. Rula Amin, uh, well put. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, let's talk about that handshake, right? It's 9.30 out here out west, a little bit later in other parts of the country. It was quite the handshake. It's one of those things that just hit social media today. If you don't know the story, the premiers were in Ottawa today to talk health care, right, with the prime minister. 
beforehand, and this has been happening over the course of the past few days, they've been meeting individually with Prime Minister Trudeau. So Danielle Smith, who is still relatively new as Premier of Alberta, this was her first official meeting, as far as I know, with, with the Prime Minister. So they do the usual thing, you know, where the press gallery is there, the press is there, or at least there's a, there's a photo op, right? So they share a few pleasantries, and then they, you know, smile for the cameras, sit down and start their thing. Usually at that point, that's when all the media leaves the room and lets them have their chat, right? And then they'll talk to the media afterwards, depending, but usually. So it's all kind of formal, and it's all a bit of a waste of time in some senses. And the handshake that they went to give each other. So they're kind of talking. Uh, you can tell they're both a little nervous to be, well, nervous, anxious, awkward. It's not a particularly comfortable encounter. I mean, you know, Danielle Smith has made her feelings about uh, the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa all too clear. And she probably doesn't want to get the big hug from from the prime minister because she knows where that's going to end up, right? She's going to end up on the front page of papers where she doesn't want to have to see it. Um, but he kind of thrusts his hand out at her at one point, quite quite suddenly. And she just kind of leaves her hand down toward the side. She sort of looks like she's about to make the move, but the hand doesn't go. It just stays there. The prime minister grabs her hand, essentially, not not violently, but it's the weirdest looking awkward kind of clutch. And then they kind of turn to the cameras. He gives a big grin. He's done a million of these. Daniel Smith's grin was less less, less bright, so to speak. And then they sit down and start their chat. Well, this was like the most interpreted handshake of it in the last while, at least. I mean, there have been others, right? Uh, Donald Trump was was famous for, for his handshakes. But this one was was uh, was heavily, heavily scrutinized. And uh, there are lots of theories that there. A lot of it depends on your politics, obviously, right? Did she snub him? Well, if you... You know, if you're more inclined to like the prime minister than the premier, then probably you think she did. If uh, you're more inclined to like, you know, the premier than the prime minister, maybe you think she didn't. Uh, but we have a different theory coming up, by the way. Um, Valerie says, uh, hello, why did they shake hands at the first moment when they entered the room? Very awkward and caught Danielle off guard. I think people do think that. Like, I think as you look at it again and again and again, you know, I do think that was probably running through her mind. She's like, oh, I don't want a big, happy, smiley handshake with the prime minister. You know, that's not necessarily great for my politics, but I don't want to be rude either. You know, I don't want to be, don't want to treat him unkindly. I'm his guest here and we haven't met before. So who knows what happened? It just like looked like two people awkwardly trying to go through the motions of a photo op and failing miserably. <laughs> which is kind of what it boiled down to. These things happen all the time though, right? Handshakes go wrong all the time. I'm sure it's happened to you where you sort of, or or any sort of encounter can sometimes go wrong. That's why for a little while during COVID, you'd sort of stick out your hand at a reflex and then you'd go to fist bump and then you'd elbow bump or you just wouldn't do anything at all. So we're all a little out of practice too in everyone's defense. Uh, but what was, we thought we'd ask an etiquette expert someone who knows about handshakes, someone who studies this stuff, advises people on how to do this stuff properly. Uh, so joining me now is Vancouver etiquette expert, Elizabeth Burnett. She's founder and president of Elizabeth Etiquette. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me and my thanks to your listeners as well. So tell me about the importance of the handshake, even in informal situations such as the meeting of two political leaders such as this one. Well, typically a handshake is a greeting, uh, a goodbye or a farewell or a finalization of an agreement. 
in political situations or social business and political situations such as we have here, one would hope that uh, it would be um, more formal where one would make uh, eye contact, uh, present with a warm smile and uh, also a firm handshake and focusing on the other person as well and um, making them feel comfortable in your company. That's certainly not what we witnessed witnessed here. How would you rate that on uh, from from your from your etiquette lens? How would you rate I that would... particular exchange? <laughs> Rather awkward and towards the lower part of the scales. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually quite interesting. This uh, greeting between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith. Now. We were on observation when, of course, we talk about the eye contact first because um, the eyes are the windows to the soul. And as I alluded to earlier, um, in social business and in this case, political situations, trust is established when meeting people. And in particular, in our interaction, in our greetings, and when it involves the handshake. But when I was watching the short clip, I noticed that the the PM and um, Smith were they were made eye contact. They were having a conversation, and then the Prime Minister initiated the handshake. But as he was doing that, he looked down and grasped Miss Smith's hand, pulling it towards him, <laughs> and uh, then. Briefly looking up at her and then diverting his gaze to the the, the media. One would actually uh, refer to this type of handshake as a controller handshake, uh-huh. uh, in which the other person feels their hand being pulled towards the other person. And in fact, this is um, basically wanting to dominate the situation, if not the room. And so this is what I observed here in this interaction between uh, the Prime Minister and uh, Miss Smith. Interesting, because at first glance, it looks like, I guess you're sort of looking at her because she's the one who's left her hand down. And then yes. you realize that he's going to have that handshake no matter what, right? It doesn't matter where she's put her <laughs> hand, he's grabbing for it. And, uh, and then you could see why she might feel awkward about it. Absolutely. And also, if you note, the handshake was lower down towards the bottom part of the torso. And it really should have been higher up, sort of hip waist, waist level, because you have eye contact and then the warm smile and then the firm handshake. And you would hold that gaze just long enough to note the other person's expression, which, of course, the prime minister didn't do here. Uh-huh. It was very swift. It was. On observation, this was indeed a very awkward greeting between the Prime Minister and Alberta's Premier, Daniel Smith. I mean, the sort of, um, certainly the words that uh, Daniel Smith has had for the Prime Minister haven't been always so kind. You'd expect their, perhaps their meeting would be a little awkward, perhaps. But you must coach people too, how to interact with people they don't necessarily love (laughs) in situations (laughs) like that. Yes, well, the proper etiquette in those situations, of course, is to have respect for everyone and approach everyone in a dignified manner. And uh, everyone deserves respect, including those that perhaps we 
are not really looking forward to meeting and having to have an uncomfortable conversation with, such as may have been taking place today. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that struck me about it, and I, I sort of saw it from her point of view, thinking, "Wait a second, what's he doing? Why is he sticking his hand out to me?" And you know, I, I'm not sure I want to grab his hand like this. Like this is a photo op. I'm not too comfortable with this, Absolutely. and I think I'm just going to leave it down here. But it it came off with them both looking awkward, which I thought, was, or she looked more awkward than he did, which I thought was interesting. Yes, well, I tried to get a closer look of the actual grip of the hand because her handshake was indeed very awkward and I couldn't tell if her if her you know her fingers were actually directed in towards his palm or it was it was uh, all over very um it was uncomfortable looking for the viewer as well uh, because you almost feel uncomfortable for them and especially particularly uh, Danielle Smith and also I found it interesting that they were having a conversation already before they engaged in a handshake. Uh, usually, the handshake is on the initial meeting. They seem to be, particularly Prime Minister Trudeau, his body was facing more towards the camera as opposed to Miss Smith. She, I mean, this was clearly a photo op, right? And that could have been part of it, too. I mean, he was operating on a time frame that he's probably practiced many, many times, which is we pretend to be saying niceties to each other. I quickly grab your hand. We quickly turn to the cameras. We smile. We sit down. And that's that, right? I mean, this is sort of a routine. It felt like two figure skaters who sort of went the wrong way on each other, you know? But also, prior to them shaking hands, Justin Trudeau was doing the whole finger twirl thing. Uh, so whether he was explaining something or demonstrating something, uh, I don't know. But to me, uh, he looked a little bit more anxious in that finger, those uh, that hand, those hand movements. Interesting. I'm, I'm, it's very interesting to hear how you saw that as well, because it, it did look like he had kind of put her in an awkward situation, to be, to be frank, uh, in doing it. And yet it's so commonplace for that interaction to work that way, that it actually looked like Danielle Smith was sort of being the awkward one. But now that you pointed out, I think you're absolutely right. I, I do believe he, um, Justin Trudeau was a little anxious. Uh, and so this is where this, uh, this quick movement, uh, rotating the fingers sort of came into it. <laughs> and uh, I, I felt that Danielle Smith really... She, she was making eye contact with the prime minister. She was, or at least trying to. But of course, with the handshake being so low, it's almost as though she wanted to try and catch his eye contact, you know, to make to make it a, at least a half decent interaction and greeting between the two of them. And, and, and I agree with you that uh, he's done many photo ops and he probably wanted to get this meeting, re- meet and greet over and done with rather quickly. But still, you know, there is protocol involved here. And all of uh, those involved in these meetings deserve the uh, his attention, his focus, his respect, uh, just as anyone else would, whether they're from our country or another country. Indeed. Um, and uh, so I think that uh, this is also very important to remember that whoever we're meeting, they deserve that respect. So look up, I mean, because I think a lot of us have been involved in the odd awkward encounter, awkward handshake specifically, right? I mean, all of us have had the yes. awkward handshake, right, over the years. Oh, yes. Uh, I've had more than yes. more than a few. And normally it involves sort of reaching and the other person uh, not expecting it, a bit like today, you know, where it's sort of, it's an unexpected, maybe it's sudden, uh, you catch someone off guard or they catch you off guard. 
How, what do you advise people then when, when they find themselves in said awkward position when it comes? Because I feel like there's a moment there where where the move can be saved. You know, the move could actually, it could yes. actually work out. There's a graceful exit to that. One of the things that you can do, I mean, everyone does a four par, you know, we're not, no one's perfect. One can say something like, well, let's start again, you know, <laughs> delighted to meet you or, you know, and just sort of half laugh and, you know, and, and, and do that handshake, presume that handshake and, and establish that dignified contact. Yeah, I, I, think again, in, you know? I, think, I think in a less um, angst ridden situation, if they had known each other, for instance, already, or if they, you know, if it wasn't an anxious situation, I think they may have been able to laugh it off and start over again. But clearly, that wasn't the mood for this. Yes, that wasn't for this the mood one. here. Uh, we, as you say, we've all done it. There's been those moments, haven't quite caught the hand properly or whatever. There's nothing wrong with saying, let's start that again. Hello, my name is, <laughs> and, uh, and, and carry on. It is a reminder, though, that even now, even today, even those little moments of those sort of those little rituals that we engage in are still so important, right? And they are indeed to establish those um, social relationships, business relationships, and in this case, political relationships, and establish trust. One might worry about the trust of that relationship right now, although we probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't read too much into no, maybe one we shouldn't go there. But I totally understand what you're saying, <laughs> Elizabeth Burnett. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure, and again, thank you to your listeners. We'll get to the big news first. I mean, that was interesting. But the big news today was the federal government offering premiers more than forty-six billion dollars in new healthcare funding over 10 years, a figure that is significantly less than the premier's longstanding demands, but it is a lot of money. At a briefing this morning, the federal government said it uh, brings total health care spending to nearly $200 billion over the next 10 years. That's a lot of money. The prime minister um, discussed the offer today. Canadians deserve to know that every new dollar being announced today is exactly that, a new dollar that will go towards the improvements in health care the Canadians need. So that is the line. He also made it pretty clear that there wasn't going to be a lot of room for negotiation here. So how this would work, the new federal money would be divided up between the baseline funding, that's the money that's sent to provinces and territories through that Canada Health Transfer. That's a lot of money. That's about half the money that the federal government sends to provinces. They're meant to spend it on health care. That's how it works. Uh, of course, there's a budget deficit for provinces there. That's what all the fighting is about. And on top of that, there'd be $25 billion for separate one-on-one -on -one deals with different provinces that would, and territories that would target federal money to specific areas like primary care and mental health. And this is really giving provinces the money they need to tackle certain problems that each individual province has. So it is a ton of money, but it's less than they wanted. Uh, you know, they had really been looking for an immediate cash injection of $28 billion. So they're not getting that. And a yearly increase over that that was would be about forty six billion in new funding over ten years. So, uh, Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson is chairing the Premier's group, so she speaks for everybody as a part of the Council of the Federation. One of the things that we did see today is that there wasn't a lot in the way of new new uh, new, new funding uh, that is uh, a part of this package that has been put together by the federal government, and so. Um, you know, I think to, to say the least, I think we were a little disappointed at that. 
They've had our proposal for two and a half years and we've had it for two, two and a half hours. So we're going to have, you know, really see what the details mean uh, moving forward. So they're going to look at it. Uh, someone who knows a whole lot about this file is Jane Philpott. She's the former federal health minister and now dean of health sciences at Queen's University in Kingston. Thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. So you know these things well. You were in the room when they, these things get hammered out. Uh, I'm always curious, what is the mood like when it comes to these very high-level discussions over what is really a huge amount of money, perhaps the, well, the most important amount of money that the federal government disperses? Well, I'm very happy to hear you say that, that health spending is the most important. That's that's terrific. I would uh, be inclined to agree with you. There's nothing more important than our well-being. And I would say that this is the highest stakes meeting on health because, of course, in past agreements, it's been some time since it has happened at the level of first ministers with the prime minister and premiers talking together and discussing the details of an agreement. In the past, when I was uh, a minister of health, of course, it was mostly the health ministers and the finance ministers that got together to hammer out the deal. So it would have been very interesting to be a fly on the wall in this particular meeting. But I'm delighted that to start with that the first ministers have recognized that our health uh, systems are in crisis and it demands their various very high level attention. What do you make of the offer? Uh, It seems like a good deal, but it's not exactly what they were looking for. And there are a lot of conditions attached uh, to it, as far as I can tell. Well, I'm just reviewing the offer uh, and going through the details. And like you, it seems that uh, it's not as specific as I expected it to be. There's a significant amount of money on the table here, of course. And sometimes I think from the provincial perspective, they they uh, would give the message that there's never enough. It still uh, looks like they're, it's a bit short on what Canadians can expect. And Canadians are watching this very closely because, of course, whose money is it? It's the money of Canadians, whether it's coming from the provinces or the federal government. So uh, there's certainly an allusion to the right kinds of spending that Canadians would want to see better access to primary care, uh, mental health, modernizing our health systems, etc. But I would have liked to see a bit more about what Canadians can expect if this money is spent as directed. What is the snag between the provinces and Ottawa when it comes to When it comes to commitments, when it comes to making sure the money is spent a certain way, is it that the provinces spend it on different stuff and then ask the government for more money or Ottawa for more money? Is that where we run into problems? Well, traditionally, the challenge around the Canada health transfer has been that it is a a transfer of a very large amount of money. It's now going up to, you know, close to $50 billion uh, in annual uh, money that's being handed over from the federal government to the provinces. And there's generally not much accountability to say that will definitely be spent on improving health systems. Of course, we know that the provinces spend, you know, in in most cases, uh, almost half of their funds on healthcare. So it tends to go into healthcare, uh, at least half of it. Uh, But there is nothing to say that, you know, they couldn't take the money on a Canada health transfer and then spend it on something entirely different. So uh, that's, I think, always been the federal government's uh, challenge to say, how can we actually ensure that we are doing our fiduciary duty to to make sure that uh, if we need to fix health systems, it's going to the, the places where we think it's the most smart spending. What do you make of this idea of having individual agreements with each province depending on their needs? Because we know that each province uh, has specific needs that may be a little bit different or they have specific problems that may be a little bit different 
from their neighbors. Uh, what do you make of that? And how do we hold the provinces? How does Ottawa hold the provinces accountable if it doesn't like what it's seeing from the data? Well, if you, there's a couple questions in there. The first one, of course, being the concept of these bilateral agreements. And I'm not fundamentally opposed to that. That's what we ended up doing uh, the, on the last round and worked on through 2016, 2017. And in some ways, it makes sense because, as you already indicated, there are unique health challenges that each province faces. And it gets over the the stuckness that can happen when, when the federal government's trying to make a deal that every single province and territory will sign on to at the same time. So nobody has patience for deals getting stuck. I think your second question is a harder one to answer. You know, what happens if the money doesn't get used for what it was meant for? And that's where I think it, this is the, the really tricky part is that, you know, if there are conditions attached, they need to be measurable and, and they need to be something that Canadians themselves, not, you know, fancy bean counters can tell whether it's, it's actually working. But do Canadians notice that after this money has been spent, that they can get themselves a family doctor or that they can get access to a primary care team? Um, do we know that our the number of nurses being trained is more than it was before? Uh, so those are the kinds of very easy to measure things that, that I would would have perhaps liked to see in the kind of expectations around this new money. Because you mentioned back in 2017, you thought it should have been perhaps could have been more overt as well back then that uh, the, the, we could have laid out or the, or the conditions could have been laid out a bit more clearly so that, again, so the Canadians would know what to expect. Yeah, so I would say, I mean, I'm happy with the fact as I look back on what happened in 2017 that we, it was very clear that additional money at that point, it was in the order of $11 billion of new money additionally to the transfer that it was to go to both mental health and home care. So at least we opened that conversation to say, you know, the federal government through its spending power authorities can actually attach some conditions to how we'd like to see this money being spent. It's a little harder to sort of dig through the data and say, okay, did mental health actually get better in its care delivery than it was if that money hadn't been spent? And I think that's not has not been so easy to show. So as I say, I think what I would like to see in this, and I mean, it's not too late. I think those conditions could still be added. I'm a big fan of believing that every Canadian needs to have access to a primary care team. Why couldn't we use this amazing opportunity with new resources to say that's the expectation? And Canadians will be able to say whether it's happened or not over a five or 10 year period of time and uh, be able to hold all orders of government to account. Jane Philpott, the former federal health minister, is with us this half hour. She's now Dean of Health Sciences at Queen's University in Kingston. Uh, Dr. Philpott, I, I was interested to look back, even back to like the Romano Commission and Paul Martin's um, uh, agreement, which I covered, if I remember correctly, back when there's always been this desire to have more data to say, okay, we're spending this money. Is it making it to where it needs to be? Are we seeing improvements on the ground? And it feels like in 2023, we still haven't seen the kind of data collection you might expect, for instance. What what are the challenges there? Well, they, the challenges are many. One of them is that data gets collected in different ways in different jurisdictions, in different provinces, that there are not necessarily agreed upon standards for how data uh, can be collected, what certain definitions are, for example. There are also challenges in terms of the sharing of data. So on a number of areas, Ottawa doesn't at the moment have the authority to be able to oblige provinces and territories to deliver that data in a way that 
that can be uh, understood and be able to tell a national story. And of course, there are, you know, enormous challenges the further you dig down into our data systems to just realize that when it comes to health, data is being added to the system in massive quantities, literally by the second. And uh, we really struggle to have a governance system to be able to uh, make sure that all of those systems across the country are talking to one another properly uh, and that that data is being managed and stewarded in a in the proper way. I'm more hopeful now, though, than I have ever been that we are going to figure this out because uh, all orders of government have started to put a lot more energy into this. I know the federal government has done some work through a pan-Canadian health data uh, group, and uh, certainly here in Ontario, we I, I'm also chair of the, the Ontario Health Data Council, where we have been looking at, at the governance of health data and making more progress than has happened in some time. Yeah, the whole what gets measured gets managed notion of, uh, of, of of systems, even one as complex as healthcare. I guess for most Canadians, what it boils down to is, do you have access to a family doctor? I'm out in Victoria, where there's been a huge problem with access to family physicians and primary care. I think the data that, that most Canadians would like to see is pretty straightforward. Do you think we're any closer to, to some of those solutions today, given what we've seen in, with this money? Well, I think notionally we are closer. They always say that uh, the devil is in the details and we're waiting, of course, to hear back from those to whom these new resources are being offered. And so time will tell whether or not these deals are accepted and whether or not the provinces and territories are agreeable to the same kinds of priorities. So, But certainly the kinds of things that we've been talking about, the health workforce, access to primary care, more functional health systems, health data, all of the right contents are in here. But uh, as Canadians watch, they will want to see what is it that we're going to be able to see done differently. Are those people in, in British Columbia that you're talking about who don't have a family doctor, are they going to get access to care? And if they don't, how are we going to solve those problems like the emergency department wait times and all sorts of other procedural wait times? So I would like to see more specifics be developed and some very serious commitments. Um, Canadians have expected their health systems to work better for them. And uh, there's there are a few things that are more important for us in society uh, than to be able to, to know that we'll have the care we need uh, when we need it. One thing that I was thinking about looking at all that's gone on over the past six months, thinking about the position you were in as federal health minister, one concern I have here is you don't want people to feel under pressure to deliver quick fixes when it comes to the healthcare system. Clearly, there's something there is something wrong that needs to be fixed, and we should probably fix it for the next generations, not for the next five years. And that's what I worry about when when you look a bit at the the public is angry, politicians are feeling pressure, there's a lot of finger pointing, and you wonder, get it right. <laughs> Don't do it fast, but get it right, at least. Well, it's an interesting uh, commentary in terms of the speed w- that it will take to fix things. And I think you're absolutely right that that people uh, don't want it to be done wrong at this point. And some of these things, frankly, will take time. You know, I, I, one of our biggest challenges, as I alluded to earlier, is that uh, we don't have the people in our health systems to be able to deliver the care. And you cannot manufacture a nurse or a doctor overnight. It takes time. Uh, and, you know, yes, some solutions are being suggested 
invested in terms of of uh, credentialing of internationally educated doctors and nurses, for example, that will not come close to solving uh, the challenges that we have. And so that means we we need to get to work at uh, growing our health workforce, making sure that those who are on the front lines now are are in a in a positive work environment, so they won't leave the workforce. Uh, so there's no shortage of work ahead. Well, Dr. Philpott, as always, thank you for your insight on this. Thanks for having me. The question of what happened to Teresa Allure has haunted her family since the 19-year-old. A student at a CEGEP, a college in Lennoxville, which is east of Montreal, disappeared all the way back in November of 1978. This is an area that I knew well when I was a kid. My parents used to spend time right in that very area. When I first started out in journalism, I was actually the correspondent briefly in Sherbrooke, which is uh, right next door to Lennoxville. So I know the roads with where this happened. I know the area this happened in. And it happened when I was just a young kid, um, seven at the time. But uh, her body was found, Teresa Allure, the 19-year-old, her body was found six months later, not far from where she had last been seen. Uh, At first, police thought it was a possible drug overdose. Later, a coroner ruled she'd probably been strangled, but the case went cold quickly. Her brother, John, was just 14 when his older sister died. Uh, The family had moved to New Brunswick at this point. Um, Teresa had stayed behind to go to school in Quebec. Uh, But John would be haunted by what happened to his sister. In the early 2000s, he would start to look into her case again. After years of being cold, the family had fought to try to find out what had happened, but he really started to look into this again back in the early 2000s. And he did so with the help of an old friend, a high school girlfriend, in fact, by the name of Patricia Pearson, who had become, in the interim, a well-known crime reporter. So together they teamed up and they started to look into Teresa's case. What they found was oftentimes shocking. Um, The holes in the case... Uh, the, the sort of the scope of the police work was left much to be desired at the time. Keep in mind, this was a time back in the late 70s where when people disappeared, women specifically, young women specifically, uh, we know that from many other examples, uh, they were often written off as having run away or just disappeared of their own free will, uh, which was unfortunately often not the case. It was more often than not the case, but in too many examples, it was not. So together they started to pull the threads of this case. He started one of the first online crime blogs devoted to his sister's case, but also to others. Then in 2006, the Quebec Provincial Police put Teresa's case at the top of a list for a new cold case unit. Still, no arrests were made. No real progress was made. They made progress, though. Right across the country, their work culminated in a book called Wish You Were Here, A Murdered Girl, A Brother's Quest, and The Hunt for a serial killer. Now that last term needs some explanation because the book does deliver some surprising findings, including that Teresa's death may have been linked to a man who had been living in that same area of Quebec where she was killed back in 1978, but wound up out West, wound up in Alberta, wound up being convicted of a 1993 murder in Calgary. And then their inquiry again you know, that suspect, they believe, may have been responsible for other deaths, including that of Teresa Allure, 15 years earlier and 3,700 kilometers away. So with more on all of this, I'm joined now by brother, blogger, and author John Allure, um, from where he's lived for many years now in North Carolina, as he's continued 
to search for the truth in his sister's case. John, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. So, John, I, I guess we can start at the beginning and, and take us back to to nineteen, you know, the late seventies. You were you were just young. You were still just a teenager, and uh, you had this dynamic older sister who went off to Sejep or college, right, Champlain College in Lennoxville, which a place I know well. And then something, then November happened. You know, it was um, you know kind of a a fractured time for us. We had just moved from the West Island of, of, of Montreal to St. John, New Brunswick. So, and, and the, the, the family was kind of bifurcated. My Teresa and my brother Andre stayed to go to Sejep at Champlain College. And because I was 13, 14, I of course accompanied my parents to St. John. You know, they had, they had gone to this small Sejep, small community in Lennoxville in the Eastern townships. Seemed like a great place. For anybody who knows the townships, it's, it's much like the Laurentians. It's where, you know, in the summers and winters, you go to get away from the city of Montreal. And then six weeks uh, after she'd been there, she she disappeared. She disappeared on November 3rd, 1978. It was a bit of a mystery of what, you know, where did she go? Yeah. And thinking back to that time, I remember distinctly, even just from covering stories in the townships and elsewhere in the world, even, you know, we treated those sorts of disappearances with a lot less urgency back then than we would today. You know, I was just watching a French documentary of a missing person and, you know, kind of covered the same a woman who was missing for nine months. Teresa was missing for six. And they sort of said, you know, was this person a runaway? Was she abducted? All of these things. So the, you know, it was that typical rundown um, happened and uh, but but there was you know at that time there was a there was a lot of finding fault with the the person who had disappeared you know did they do something to in, in, encourage this predicament hence the runaway the, all of this and um you know today we call that victim blaming but there was a you know I, I would say that my parents came up against you know not only the trauma of having their eldest child missing but also some obstinance and, and real callousness, you know, at the hands of the school and the, the police investigators. Yeah. And it was a different time in Quebec, too. I mean, I remember from that. I mean, first of all, the language issues were fraught back then. And there was always a big language divide in Lennoxville and Sherbrooke, uh, if I remember back correctly. I'm not sure that had any role in it. But it, it felt like just reading all the stories that you've written about it, that um, they were pretty quick to dismiss this as just someone who had taken off or, or looking for other reasons why she may have vanished. Yeah, I I mean, I've I've written volumes on why I think that is. But in the interest of, of our time together, I, I would say that they, they it was a product of the times, you know, a missing woman, you know, who cares? We're we're busy chasing biker gangs and organized crime, money laundering and, and drugs and things like this. So this is not a priority. There was that, but it was, there was, you know, that indifference. But there was also, I, I would say, you know, that the, the times certainly had uh, something to do with it. Uh, with the, the party Quebecois coming into power late 76 not to be critical of where your language politics lie, it has nothing to do with that. It has more to do with the change that went on. The liberals had been in power for years and and really had experience at running governments, and, and this new party did not. And they so they brought in new people 
some quite quite brilliant, um, uh, like André Perron, who's the justice ministers, but uh, but others who were vastly inexperienced. Coupled with the mass consolidation of police forces, a lot of local police forces were becoming, uh, you know, coming uh, emerging into the Sarté du Québec. Right. I guess yeah, it was still a young police force at the time. She's found. You mentioned it already. Five months later. And yeah. that triggers that triggers the rest of this story, doesn't it? What happened? Yeah, so she's she's found in a ditch about a mile from her residence in Compton, Quebec, which absolutely refutes everything that the police was saying. They were bending over backwards to try to say that she was anywhere but within the jurisdiction of their authority. There were theories that she was in Florida or she'd gone to Vermont, she'd gone to Calgary. Uh, back to Montreal, anywhere but there. So when when she was found, they need to f- needed to kind of find another uh, excuse. And I'll be blunt here: is almost immediately, despite the evidence that she was found face down in a sp- stream in her underwear. You know, it had all of the indicators of a of a sexual murder. Her wallet was found ten miles away from where her body was. There were marks of strangulation around her neck, noted by the coroner. And lastly, the toxicological report refuted the idea of a drug overdose or anything like that. There are absolutely no drugs or alcohol in her system. Nevertheless, police immediate, almost immediately told my parents that she probably died of a drug overdose. John Allure is with us uh, this hour on A Little More True Crime. We're talking about uh, his book that he's co-written with Patricia Pearson called Wish You Were Here, A Murdered Girl, A Brother's Quest, and The Hunt for a Serial Killer about the death of his, the murder of his sister, Teresa Allure, in November of 1978 in the eastern townships east of Montreal, uh, near a city called Sherbrooke in a town called Compton. She was a student at the time at uh, Champlain College there. I mean, John, I, I can't imagine. I mean, you were you were in New Brunswick at this time, but you know, everything I've heard said about your sister was that she was. I mean, she left such a hole in many people's lives, and obviously in yours. Oh yeah, I mean, Teresa was a pistol, and um, you know, a real inspiration and leader. You know, the it's the eldest member of your family, and um, you know, at a very young age, you know, she seemed to kind of see the world for what it was and and usually got things right, you know, in her opinions of things. And nevertheless, having said that, I, you know, she was not a particularly judgmental person. She had a cutting sense of humor, but was not, you know, she didn't use that as a weapon against others, as so many do, you know, with your teen years, your high school years. She sort of was really a protector and a defender, of, in my memory, of, of everyone, you know, including me. I mean, I was kind of a dopey kid. I was picked on and she'd defend me and things like that. What did she want to be? What, what did she hope to be? Did she know yet? Well, I've pondered that, you know. Um, I remember for she did like a stint at Vanier in Montreal, Montreal. Mm-hmm. and um, was doing like a documentary film uh, course and uh, so we have these Super 8 reels that she shot of the Montreal metro system at various stations, which is fantastic, right? I mean, at the time, it was the most boring thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was just trains coming and going out of those locations. Of course, 40 years later, right? 
when all of those those sites have been revamped or in, in some cases destroyed, it, the artifact is fascinating. So there was that element, but I, I think something along, something involved in the social sciences, I think is where she was headed. What happened afterwards? So she's found um, the SQ, the Sauté du Québec are investigating. They pretty quickly decide that uh, they're probably, it seems at least pretty quickly decide that they're not going to find, they don't even know if they're looking for anyone at this point. What is going on with you? Is this, does this, what is the timeline for this case simply going cold? Come the fall of 1979, I think my father had like a final meeting with the lead Sarté de Quebec investigator at the, at the Dorval Hilton Hotel, you know, kind of him and and there was a there was another police chief from Lennoxville who was who was heavily involved in the matter, and it's kind of a meeting of minds, and they all kind of concluded that if she died of a drug overdose, then more than likely some students were involved, and it was a shared opinion that. But but really egged on by the the Certe de Quebec, who were experts here, that all they needed to do was wait, and someone would crack, or someone would come forward. Of course, the problem with that well, there's two problems with that theory. The number one is students had nothing to do with this crime. The second is that that people don't crack unless there's pressure. <laughs> you, you, yeah. you know, you need to. You, you need to put some pressure on something before it opens up. So merely to wait, I would say, was a faulty strategy. And 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 yet you go on right with with uh, as as one is wont to do. You carry on with life. You 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 end up in the states. And did you over all that time? You, I mean, the, the questions may still have been there. Was it talked about a lot, or was it something that you didn't talk about? <laughs> no, I um. It was not talked about a lot. I, I I know people to this day who like when when Wish You Were Here, you know, was released a couple of years ago. People who knew me well, either at college or in high school, had no idea that this had been going on, you know, particularly in high school in parallel. No idea. And and I think what's interesting about that is for me, I was like, how how would you not know? Because you're living with it. So it's all in your mind. So you have this impression that, that everybody has tapped into that and that it's going going on. But apparently I never talked about it, you know, except maybe a few. I mean, obviously to Patricia, because she was my girlfriend at the time. She knew, but very few others did. John Allure is with us on a little more true crime this hour. We're talking about uh, a book that he's co-written with Patricia Pearson called Wish You Were Here about uh, the murder of his sister, Teresa Allure, in 1978 in Quebec. Um, John, you mentioned the name Patricia Pearson. She was a girlfriend of yours in high school. Many, many years later, you reconnect. And you had already started, I think, to look in to try to figure out what had happened. It it stayed with you and you wanted to know more about a case that you, I think you gathered at this point, police were never going to solve. You, you know, it, it it's like a pebble in your shoe, right? It, it keeps gnawing at you. And 
And I had poked around, but I was really under the influence of elders and believing the narrative that had been told to me. You know, when that narrative of a drug overdose gets repeated and repeated by your father, who heard it from the police, that's really hard to lose. I think in the back of my mind, I always had an instinct that there was something wrong with that. And I needed a sounding board to kind of run all this through. And that was Patricia. You know, she had been my high school uh, girlfriend, but more that she'd become one of my best friends over the years and, and remained so. And she at the time was a crime reporter and she graciously agreed to meet me in the townships and kind of go over things. And, and you know, like, let's go there and let's see the places. Let's let's do real concrete things like they, they say a wallet was found on this road. Well, which road? Let's go see it. Where exactly was the body found? Well, let's go see that. So I remember being at the, the, the dump site where my sister was was found uh, one afternoon, I believe it was in 2002, and standing there with Patricia, you know, in this, this cloudy day, it's, it's, a, it's about the same time of year that she disappeared, you know, the harvest is complete and all that, and, and we're walking around this cornfield, and she just looks at it, and... and I, we, I think we both had the, the feeling at the same time, but she was the one who actually said it. She said, Did John, this was no drug overdose. This was a sex crime. Yeah. And you started digging and then then you started to find, I mean, I remember Lennoxville back in the day. I mean, it was it was there was a well-known Hells Angels uh, bunker in Sherbrooke. I mean, it was a pretty it was seen as being a relatively dangerous place back in the day. And no doubt there was a lot going on behind the scenes that we didn't know that much about. You started to look into other crimes that would have been committed around the same time and started to see some some pretty significant parallels. It, it just seemed logical to me to say, okay, was anyone else murdered around this time? And sure enough, two others had been murdered. This is when we started within, I think, a 17-month period. So the second question was, were they ever solved? And the answer was, no, they were never solved. So then that that became very, very compelling to me. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was suspicious yet. It was compelling. So we began to look at look at that. What did you find? What did you find? I mean, I gather at some point you start to think, wait a second, this may have been connected to other crimes. Yeah. So there was there was the 1977 strangulation murder of Louise Cameron, who was found outside of Sherbrooke. And there was the 1978 murder. Well, it's inconclusive, but I believe she was murdered of a, I believe, 10 or 12 year old girl named Manon Dubay. All three of them sort of had a locus of Sherbrooke, Lennoxville, but their bodies were dumped you know, on the outskirts of town. I mean, you mentioned that about it being kind of a rough place. Like any town and gown situation, you know, the college was protected, but if you ventured outside the walls of the college, you were in, in danger of getting into trouble. So beyond that, what we found was there had been a whole series of sexual assaults in the area on the frontiers of women either hitchhiking or jogging or just going about their lives. They were they were sexually assaulted and, and almost murdered in some cases. 
John Allure is with us on a little more true crime. We're talking about a book that he's co-written called Wish You Were Here. Uh, it's, is it, about, it is about the murder of his sister, Teresa Allure, in 1978, east of Montreal in a place called Lennoxville, um, a case that went very cold very quickly, and how decades later, along with a girlfriend that he had in high school, one of the few people that he'd actually talked about this with back then, uh, they'd remained friends and then they teamed up she had become patricia pearson had become a crime reporter and they had teamed up to start to look in to the many unanswered questions around this case so you start to develop this theory and how does it lead you away from that small area of the eastern townships well it led us to calgary patricia knew a criminologist who had interviewed practically every murderer in the quebec prison system and so we asked the question, based on the information I just told you, is there anyone that fits that profile that you interviewed? And he said, yes, there is someone. And, and that guy was an offender named Luke Gregoire, who grew up in Sherbrooke, but then promptly around the mid-80s, abruptly left Sherbrooke and ended up in uh, Alberta, shuffling between Edmonton and Calgary. And in 1992-93, he was arrested for the murder of a 7-Eleven convenience store clerk named Lanny Silva and given a, a life sentence. So he was out of commission by then. He died in prison in 2015. But what remained unanswered was, had he committed other murders, is suspected by the Calgary police in a number of unsolved murders along the stroll in in Calgary. And the question we had was that because he was from Sherbrooke originally and grew up there, did his criminal profile start in that city? And were possibly some of these three murders and some of the sexual assaults we were looking at committed by Luke Gregoire? What what was the response then of the authorities? I mean, you you worked now for for years on this together, you and Patricia. And, and what was the response? And you're at this point, you've already started one of the first true crime blogs about your sister and other cases. So you've kind of blazed a trail when it came to this whole notion of the cold case and and digging into it. One that's very familiar now, but was not familiar when you started. So you've compiled all this stuff, and I imagine people took it less seriously then, too, when people came forward with evidence like this, or at least theories like this. What was the reaction of the authorities when you said, I think we're on to something here? You, you raise an interesting point, because you're right. I mean, I've had the, the site, TeresaLore.com, for 20 years now. And when I started that website, there were a lot of tribute pages back then. For victims, there'd be websites about the murder but it was more uh, leaning towards pictures of the, the victim and kind of an, an angelic halo and candles. And it was not necessarily trying to solve the crime. It was paying homage to the, the loved one. And that shifted rapidly. And, and I had made the decision. I had seen that landscape and I said, well, I don't want to be part of that landscape. I want to go for it. My feeling was that that the police should take what I said seriously and that I was as, every bit as good as, as them. By that time, I had gotten a, a master's degree in justice administration. I'm not saying that is true, Ben, but but I'm saying that that was kind of my 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't untrue either, right? Yeah, it wasn't untrue. Exactly. It wasn't untrue I, either. So when we pitched this idea to them about geographic profiling, and they, you know, there was a theory that, that, that eventually was, you know, championed by, by Kim Rosmo, who was an investigator who kind of told like Cassandra, like like a like someone in a burning theater, f- that they had a problem in the downtown East End of Vancouver, which uh, uh, you know led to the Robert Picton situation. Uh, you know they you know the Vancouver police didn't listen to Rosmo either, so I shouldn't have been surprised that the Quebec police were not listening to this. Nevertheless, years later. You know, the, the people who were incredulous with me about this, that I was trying to convince, became, you know, went to Quantico for training on behavioral profiling and were made to study Kim Rosmo and geographic profiling, which is quite ironic. Uh, you communicated with, with the person you suspected, perhaps, of having been responsible, or at least made sense from a profiling perspective, that he'd been in Sherbrooke at the time, he'd been in Calgary when there was a string of murders there. What did he say? Prior to my communicating with him, the Sarté de Québec actually did did some good work um, at the hands of an investigator named Eric Latour. And Eric went the extra mile to to go to Calgary and study Gregoire's file there, he he went so far as is to they put a plant in his cell in in uh, Archambault and tried to get him to you know cough up information. Um, they they gave him a polygraph which was inconclusive. The point I'm trying to make here before I tell you about communicating with Gregoire is they had come up empty. They they'd hit a wall. He could have been the murderer, but th- they just didn't have any you know anything but circumstantial evidence at that part point and and barring a confession it wasn't going anywhere shortly before he died in 2015 i did a hail mary pass i wrote gregoire a letter in arshinpo and i'd thought about this a lot i i was you know it's kind of like the eye of sauron once you call attention to yourself you, you've you've crossed a line so there was no looking back and you know at that time i had no way of knowing that he was going to you know later die in prison so it was it was a gambit and and i wrote him very simply if, you know not an accusatory letter but a very simple letter so, so sort of saying you know a lot you grew up in sherbrooke my sister died in the sherbrooke area would you know anyone who might have you know committed this crime very plain and not again accusatory and he wrote me back i would say what was interesting is a very colorful letter almost immediately handwritten which emphatically denied any involvement with the crime, but was, you know, we, we had a, a number of handwriting analysis experts uh, look at it, and including the, the, the FBI guy who cracked the Unabomber case. And the opinion really was that, that, you know, this was a narcissist and a braggart, and by saying he didn't do anything, he was actually saying somehow that, he'd, that he did. He was implying that he, he, he did. And I gather from there, and with the or, book, and uh, or had knowledge of the crime. Excuse me. Right. Uh, I gather. I gather. Given that, given the work you'd done with Patricia, given your long 
time in advocacy around this, that in many ways, and you mentioned this when we first started chatting, that it stopped being a whodunit for you and became something different. It became about crime and about how it's treated and 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 those who are you know those who mem- whose memories are 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 tarnished in some ways by what's said about their deaths that turns out to be incorrect years later such as such as Teresa yeah i felt that i had given it my best shot you know it's been over 40 years nothing's going to bring her back and if it wasn't gregoire chances are some other person who might have had a hand in it is also deceased by now and I, I think there's a time to to be the squeaky wheel. And, and there's I thought there was more power in lending my voice to other unsolved murders and trying to shine a light on what I saw as similar, not similar murders, not chasing a serial killer, but shining a light on a pattern of criminal investigative failures at the hands of the Quebec police. I really, I really thought that was a better position to take and, and that if I could help another case, then so be it. Well, John Allure, thank you so much for sharing that story with us tonight. Um, I appreciate it. And, and you know, you've done some great work over the years. Just in all those circumstances, it's amazing what, what journey you went on after that and what's become of it. Well, Ben, I, I really appreciate you, you know, giving the time to kind of work out my thoughts here today. And, and, and thanks so much uh, for having me. 